Welcome, and thanks for listening to the new voices of SUD Let's Grow Together, a pilot podcast brought to you by the Southeast Addiction Technology Transfer Center Network, better known as SATTC, a leading project under the Division of Substance Use Prevention and Treatment in the National Center for Primary Care here at the Historical School of Morehouse School of Medicine, where we discuss topics on substance use resources and research, challenges in the addiction workforce, workforce development for the young professional, the millennial, services and support for minority women, treatment for vulnerable populations such as the homeless, migrant, and incarcerated, faith community strategies, and the evolution of SUD. Welcome and stay tuned. Hey guys, and welcome back. And thank you for tuning in to episode six, where we have the pleasure of introducing our own from Morehouse School of Medicine at the National Center for Primary Care, Dr. Ann Gagliotti. And she is the associate professor in the um, Department of Family Medicine and also serves as the associate director of research, director of the Southeast Regional Clinicians Network as well. Um, She is a graduate from Case University, and she is bringing along with her, Dr. Brian McGregor, who is a Morehouse graduate that went on to complete a um, degree at the University of South Carolina and also a health policy leadership fellow here at Morehouse School of Medicine, Satcher Health Leadership Institute um, from 2009 to 2010. And Dr. McGregor today sits as the assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Medicine and associate director for research at the Kennedy Satcher Center for Mental Health Equity, which is at the Satcher Health Leadership Institute. Institute, which stands for H-S-H-L-I. And so you'll probably hear me screw that up multiple times. But, um, you know, as you all know, acronyms are very important. So H-S-H-L-I is here at Morehouse School of Medicine as well from Dr. Satcher himself um, as a former Surgeon General. So we want to welcome the two of them. And today we'll be talking about the unheard with the vulnerable populations in the incarcerated and people who are in the judicial system. So I can't wait. Juicy conversation. Stay tuned. And thanks as always for listening. So thanks, guys. I appreciate you guys coming today. And so what our topic is, is really the justice system and SUDs and co-incurrent disorders. Pretty simple um, about what the topic is. And I want Dr. Gangliotti and Dr. McGregor to introduce themselves and really tell us a little bit about you. We always like to introduce um, and get that insight of day-to-days, what different public health professionals are out here doing and practice, um, you know, what they do day-to-day. So go ahead and introduce yourselves. I will introduce Dr. Gangliotti first, um, since she is who we invited and love to bring on a mm-hmm. special guest. This is our first time we had three people talking, so I will be quiet most of the time, <laughs> but um, definitely want to hear your expertise. So thank you, Dr. Gangliotti. Thanks for having me, Celine. Yeah, um, I am a family physician and currently serve as the Associate Director for Research at the National Center for Primary Care here at Morehouse School of Medicine, and I also direct a practice-based research network of federally qualified health centers in the southeastern United States. Um, but a passion throughout my career has been uh, care of uh, 
people who've been touched by incarceration in some way. Since I was a resident, um, that has been a passion of mine. Um, and so I've had the opportunity um, to serve uh, in several capacities around uh, caring for people who've been incarcerated. And so hopefully we'll be able to share some of that experience with you today. Great, great. And Dr. McGregor? Sure. Uh, glad to be here. Glad that Dr. Gagliotti invited me. Um, I am a assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences here at Noir School of Medicine, and I'm also the associate director for research in the Kennedy Satcher Center for Mental Health Equity, which sits in the Satcher Health Leadership Institute. Nice. Um, I am a clinical community psychologist by training. Uh, my sort of beginning um, work uh, involved uh, in the criminal justice space was in uh, prisons in Alabama. So I was a mental health supervisor and a clinician uh, in uh, in the prison system in Alabama, where I got to see some of the challenges and wanted to try to tackle some of the issues involved in criminal justice reform, particularly as it intersects mental and behavioral health, substance use, uh, more upstream. So had the opportunity to come to Morehouse School of Medicine and be a health policy and leadership fellow in the uh, uh, Satcher Health Leadership Institute that Dr. Uh, Satcher started, and since then have been doing uh, research and program evaluation work in some uh, health po policy-informed ways, um, trying to address some of the challenges with uh, mass incarceration um, and uh, just sort of strategies to reduce the number of people who are in the justice system, particularly those who have mental health and substance use uh, disorders who I think are, are vulnerable in ways mm -hmm. that um, other populations may not be. And, um, you know, really glad to talk about this topic. I think it's very important. We see a lot that's being discussed in the sort of public uh, different spaces around these issues. And you know, hopefully we'll make some progress. Yep. And I think those are tons of different points and we'll get to a deep dig deeper in a lot of them. And I think from a personal experience for me um, as a family member of multiple people being incarcerated, being incarcerated is one thing you do um, being from the neighborhoods of Detroit, Michigan, it, 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 either you're dead, you go to college or you're, you know, in the streets and might go to jail. And so a lot of times, a lot of my family seen in jail, but the fact of the matter is maybe not everyone needs to be in jail. There might be another thing that needed to have been addressed mentally or substance use wise. And, you know, kind of was just channeled into being incarcerated. And so it really touches home, like, are we incarcerating people for the right reasons? But policy, you know, those assessments mentally, um, mental health is really important. And so I definitely appreciate you all doing that work um, as it touches home to my own personal family. Um, and so first, I think my question would be, I'll just dig right in. Um, what are the top challenges that you all see as far as um, key things that have need to be addressed at this very moment, um, those high things that are on your to-do list of priority and making sure um, in practice and as well um, as in the community and policy that you see are like top priority at this point in 2019, 2020 almost. <laughs> well, I mean, I think those overall issues that Brian talked about, like mm -hmm. criminal justice reform and an end to mass incarceration. Of course. Um, are sort of top of mind. Um big priority issues. Um, but I would say that uh, some of the things that I think that are important um, for folks who do uh, end up in the justice system are to be sure that the access they have to health care and mental health care 
is of high quality. Mm-hmm. Um, these are our most vulnerable populations. Oftentimes, um, being incarcerated can be a, sort of an, an entryway into the healthcare system for mm-hmm. a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we need to do due diligence to be sure that the workforce who's practicing in that space um, and the care that's being delivered is really high quality because we have an opportunity to to really improve people's um, health long term. Um, I think that, um, you know, the other thing that I think is, uh, is important when we think about criminal justice reform or um, an end to mass incarceration is sort of the structural racism that it exists in the, in the justice system. And, and that's something um, that's important for all of us to kind of be aware of and tackle. Yeah, I, d- I definitely agree. I, I um, often like to s- sort of frame the conversations around criminal justice um, with what I understand to be uh, the criminal justice system. And uh, there's a group called Critical Resistance uh, that talks mm-hmm. about abolishing uh, the system of mass incarceration. We describe it as mm-hmm. uh, the collaboration of government and industry okay. um, to mm-hmm. conduct surveillance uh, uh, in, incarceration of, mm-hmm. of folks and, and monitoring of, of people uh, as a way to solve social, political, and economic problems. So if we talk about it in, in, in those terms, we can understand that uh, the criminal justice system it, it includes people who are incarcerated and includes people who are on probation and parole. Yes, it includes definitely. people who are incarcerated in jails and prisons. Mm-hmm. And I find that some people don't understand the difference between the two. This is different, um, yes. And so when we think about that, I think it really sets us up to have um, informed conversations and be strategic about how to uh, reduce uh, the, the, the um, recidivism, but also people going into uh, the system. So it, uh, one of the things that you, you hear, uh, that I definitely hear in this space is that uh, the criminal justice system in most states is the largest provider of mental behavioral health services in that state. And that's because a lot of folks who have uh, those challenges uh, often uh, are very visible to law enforcement. They're mm-hmm. overrepresented among the homeless population. Yep. And so I think uh, SAMHSA has this uh, model called the sequential intercept model that they talk about. And it basically describes uh, the different uh, sort of pathways and steps that people uh, kind of go into uh, prison, how they go into prison and what their experiences are like from encountering law enforcement in the community all the way to, you know, going through the system, being locked up, going in front of the judge, so on and so forth, and then coming back out, sort of reentry. And I think our strategies need to address all of those points because at any point you can sort of uh, further someone's sort of entry into the criminal justice system, or you can address their needs, all of them, including health, that uh, makes it more likely to, for them to come out and, and stay out and be healthy. Um, on those two notes, um, especially with actually providing mental health and, you know, car disorder and substance abuse care in, in, the, um, in prisons and institutions of incarceration, um, what are actually some 
practices that you all implement when I know you said, Dr. McGregor, that you hadn't been in um, an actual prison or jail in quite, you know, not not too recent. Um, But I mean, in your whole experience with working with the populations for the two of you, what are some tools and actual ways that are that you practice that are different in the way that you handle those populations? Um, Kind of those specialized, tailored, targeted approaches to the way you're trying to do and, um, you know, combat mass incarceration and also just the way you provide your care to them. So I'll just um, make um, one comment about what that looked like when I was a clinician in, sure. the, in the prison system. And that's just screening. Yeah. Universal screening. Yeah. And I am disappointed and maybe no longer surprised <laughs> at how many institutions do not screen mm-hmm. everyone coming into their jail. Yeah for mental health and substance use issues. Mm -hmm. That is an important, a very important step in being able to understand where people are, what their needs might be so that you can, uh, you know, sort of triage care, so to speak, being Mm -hmm. being able to respond to their needs if they need further assessment, if they need crisis intervention, suicide, you know, any sort of needs can be addressed. When you start from that point, you can refer them to treatment and I think that would go a long way into helping us better understand what the needs are in terms of like a, from an epidemiological yeah, perspective. Yeah. I know but, that perspective. <laughs> yes, but, but also being able to um, sort of effectively uh, uh, sort of ma- manage people's uh, challenges so that they can not only get the care that they need while in jail, but also so that that care can be coordinated with individuals who uh, are, you know, might be providing care for them when they when they're released. Right. Um, I, I forget the number, but it's 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 upwards of ninety percent of people who go to jail are going to come back out to the community. Mm-hmm. So coordinating that in a way that uh, uh, sort of has this continuum of of care uh, that allows them to uh, to to remain in treatment if if need be, I think it's really important. Yeah, and returning as citizens instead of refugees of our communities is really important that I really fight for, especially in helping my own family. And two things I think of is um, from from hearing stories, they either are giving the mental health care or or. It just healthcare. A lot of um, a lot of them um, are actually like that's kind of like their like work study programs. They work in the facility, so a lot of them are helping each other. And maybe in some way, I always thought that peer peer. I mean, we do peer support on the outside. How does that look in inside as well? If we can't get more um, healthcare professionals in there, how does that look? And also, I always think of if we did that screening up front. So many more of them wouldn't, I guess, see troubles the way they they have in there. I mean, a lot goes on day to day. I mean, somebody could be okay tomorrow, today, and tomorrow they're a totally different person. And the amount of you know contraband things that come in, it just changes them day to day. I noticed um, just hearing from the stories, just day to day, people just change. Somebody just flipped out. I don't know. We just saw somebody you know do some horrendous act out of nowhere, and you know that screening I think is really important. And then then you got five more at years added on. Then you have 10 more years, you know, just because things are not being addressed appropriately up front. Um, I have uh, taken care of people in prison, in jail, and then um, in transition back to the community um, as a clinician. And I, I think 
really one, understanding that continuum of um, people's journey through the justice system is important to care for them. But also, um, you know, when we think about delivering primary care, um, you know, we do that in a model that is holistic. Mm -hmm. Um, And so one thing that I think you have to understand about um, when you're serving patients in this setting is that at baseline, you just sort of assume that everyone has experienced some level of trauma um, and have to have sort of bring to bear a trauma-informed kind of care model um, in those spaces. Uh, And I think one thing that I found um, working with this population is that it was very satisfying for me as a clinician um, because those relationships that developed and the trust that um, uh, when a trusting relationship sort of patient doctor alliance was able to develop in that Mm -hmm. environment, that's really challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, I I thought that was extremely rewarding for both, for both parties. Um, (laughs) uh, Because I think it's sometimes difficult when you're in that setting and you've had your freedom taken away from you um, to feel like your own autonomy and your own personhood. Mm -hmm. Um, And that like that space in a clinical space can sometimes be a touchstone for people to, to like be in touch with themselves um, as an individual, as a human, as a person worthy of care. Um, And so I think those things were um, really important for me. Uh, and hopefully for my patients as well. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, <laughs> you have that kind of spirit. Yeah. I can feel it. I know they do. But um, the other thing that I would say, uh, at least when I practiced in the D.C. jail, and I, I pr- practiced in a community health center that was embedded in, a, in the D.C. jail. Oh, okay. Um, it was one of the uh, most successful, like, integrated care models that I've ever practiced in. Mm-hmm. Um, like. Mm-hmm. Um, the behavioral health providers and I sat in the same space. We charted together. We saw the same patients. Oh, that's awesome. And so we had this really open line of communication about um, about our patients. Uh, and I think we're able to provide better care for them. Um, because if I noted something um, about someone who maybe hadn't been captured by the screening that was done, mm-hmm. um, I could you know, get them um, evaluated by a behavioral health provider uh, almost seamlessly um, and have a warm handoff like there. And so um, there are a lot of, I think, negative aspects of, um, of practicing in, uh, in sort of um, that type of setting, um, but there are some positive aspects that I think are important <laughs> to talk about because I do think it's important to build the workforce right. um, of folks caring for, for, for um, people who've been uh, touched by incarceration. And then also to be able to build a workforce that um, if they're not practicing in that setting, they're able to receive um, folks into care and be able to provide them um the care that they need, even as they're transitioning um, back to their community. So that um, that leads into us kind of. I love the backstory, and I love that backdrop for what you all have seen. I think it. I think those are key and poignant things. Um, all very important, um, especially if I've heard. I mean, just seeing both sides is just kind of uncanny to be able to hear it from their point of view and from the public health professional's point of view. Um, So it ties the two in for me, definitely. Um, um, So speaking on what you've done in the past, 
what are some, I won't say cool, but I'll say innovative <laughs> um, and new things that you guys have on the horizon moving forward um, about ways that you would like to interact with the that pop, this population in particular, um, things you might be currently working on, um, just so we can get a, a you know, window into some of the work that you currently do. Sure. So I... Um, a lot of the work that I'm doing right now is um, sort of on the cycle of, of incarceration and recidivism is at um, the point of arrest okay. at the point where law enforcement might encounter members of the community. Mm -hmm. um, and there are some uh, models that are uh, continuing to emerge evidence about the effectiveness of diverting people from the criminal justice system all together at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a model out of Seattle called Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion or LEAD okay. that has um, uh, established pretty good efficacy in Seattle. And there's some uh, sort of replication sites around uh, the country in different cities that are different models. But basically the idea is to um, divert people from going to jail who have primarily mental and behavioral health issues, mm -hmm. not a threat to public safety. Yep. What they need is uh, all of the things um, implied by the social determinants of health mm -hmm. in terms of health care access, food, shelter, transportation, clothing, legal services, all of these things that help us you know, uh, have a good quality of life. Right. And so there is uh, a site in Atlanta uh, that hmm. is uh, has piloted a pre-arrest diversion. Uh, so okay. uh, there's some programs that are pre-booking uh, diversions. So oh. That's after arrest. But right. Atlanta uh, and Fulton County collaborated uh, to uh, focus on individuals, particularly in the downtown area, uh, which correspond to police zones five and six. Okay. And there they did some sort of um, uh, background to find out that people who had mental illness, who were homeless, who were engaged in survival sex work were overrepresented there and were a part of the populations with these frequent arrests yeah. over and over and over again. Yeah. And, uh, you know, hopefully we're going to be able to demonstrate that, that that program has had an impact on recidivism and uh, those um, quality of life outcomes. I think it's... Um, People shouldn't have to be arrested to get to good health care. Right, right. And I've, I've so heard that So I definitely recognize before. that. Yeah. Um, but uh, to the extent that we we need to sort of engage in a lot of different uh, spaces and settings to uh, address these uh, this issue, I think it's a really good step in the right direction. So yeah, and yeah. it's not a hope. You guys will. Well, you know, I, I think it. I think it sounds promising. <laughs> it's not a hope, though. I think it will definitely do well. No, I, I appreciate the vote of confidence. <laughs> Um, Dr. Gagliotti? You know, I am uh, I'm not actively engaged that's in okay. the project at this time. Um, <laughs> or if you know of any cool work that's going on right now. Sure. I mean, I think that, um, you, know, you know, whether you interrupt sort of this relapsing cycle of um, incarceration, reincarceration um, at sort of at this pre-arrest phase, which I think is really innovative That's and, really cool. and fantastic, um, post-arrest or at, you know, through drug courts with sentencing, I think that really is the key mm -hmm. um, to be able to have some infrastructure in place 
where there are pathways out of this cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so whether um, in Iowa, where I worked um, in, in a uh, halfway house for men returning to the community from prison, many of them were there um, uh, through sort of a diversion program that allowed them to have substance abuse treatment um, although they were still in um, in a correctional setting, yeah, right. essentially, yeah. right? There's, they they had their basic needs met, but they're definitely still in a correctional setting, even mm-hmm. though it's a community based correctional setting. Um, and one thing that I saw there that was really um, a problem, and was one of the reasons I started a clinic at the halfway house, was that um, there was a there was a barrier for um, obtaining health insurance while you're still on paper. Um, hmm. And and so we had uh, these folks who were diverted from being in prison and in a community correctional setting and getting substance abuse treatment, but then um, were not able to have uh, access to Medicaid coverage or health insurance that would have allowed them to have their co-occurring you know, physical health problems addressed. And so um, I think it's important um, that, you know, access to mental health care or substance abuse treatment is is of paramount importance um, for people with those issues. But it also, those folks often have co-occurring chronic health conditions mm-hmm. that are not able to be addressed in mm-hmm. sort of the... Um, in the structure of the programs that have been developed for these, um, you know, healthcare coverage access reasons or other reasons. And so I think what's needed is probably um, uh, programs that actually address both of those things, because Mm -hmm. many people um, who are in, uh, in the criminal justice system have both mental health, substance use, and chronic physical conditions, um, that those things tend to go hand in hand. So if you've been able to recover from your addiction, but you've gone blind from your diabetes, then mm-hmm. that's not an right. ideal no. situation. Right. <laughs> um, which has actually happened to one of my patients in residency. Mm. Um, so I, I think, I think those types of programs are needed. I don't actually know of, um, any specific diversion programs that are providing both of those things to you? Yeah, well, I, I know in the, the Georgia Department of uh, Corrections, they have what's called day reporting centers. Okay. And they are, um, uh, it's a uh, sort of a sentencing option that judges have at their discretion uh, for people who have uh, substance use uh, challenges. And in Georgia, which I think is becoming more so the case in other states, but Georgia was one of the first to also structure it in a way to meet the needs of people who also have uh, a co-occurring mental illness. So the focus was on substance use, but if you had, say, co-occurring depression or Mm -hmm. schizophrenia or some other diagnosis, you had to be at a certain mental health level as, you know, designated by the state. But it's a way to, uh, number one, treat people in the community where they live, Mm -hmm. but number two, to decrease the overpopulation of individuals in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And Georgia, I want to say, has about 39 of those programs around the state. When Mm -hmm. I did a pilot evaluation 
a few years ago, there were only 15, but they were looking to expand. Mm -hmm. And so I think it brought together, uh, you know, it brings together a lot of uh, community resources. Obviously, folks have, um, you know, there's still justice involved, you Mm -hmm. know, because it's a community supervision uh, uh, designation. But they're able to, um, you know, uh, detox if necessary. Oh, wow. Get, uh, you know programs that are specifically designed for people with co-occurring illness mm-hmm. um you know there it, it proceeds in uh, phases and steps so there's a there's an aftercare component they have a random and scheduled sobriety testing um you know so there's uh you know there's a, a program that wraps around them that allows them to you know get the care and treatment that they uh need uh which uh you know hopefully reduces the likelihood that they they go back to uh the back to jail or prison. I haven't seen the latest data okay. on the program, okay. but uh, you know it was promising in terms of I think the strategy and those things have a lot of uh, a lot of support from uh, the public because of the enormous amount of money that the country and the states have spent locking folks up without the results that we're all looking for. So mm-hmm. you know why not um, look for strategies that cost less and are more effective? Right, yeah. right, and I think. What I'm hearing from both of you all, that overarching, you know, policy change. That's what I, you know, especially from a lot of the points that you brought up, Dr. G. Um, there, I mean, policies, I feel like where a lot of this stuff starts, especially when it comes to Medicare, Medicaid, and, you know, not being able to get care because, you know, being, you know, in the system on papers, you know, quote unquote, those kind of things ring true. And then, you know, policy is always backed by research. And so I think that that rings true to what we do at MSM all, all day long. So I think that um, it, it's in different ways. I think that anybody who's listening, I think we have touched on major gaps in research, major <laughs> gaps in the body of literature for thesis and dissertations. There's tons of areas um, that have been untapped and um, you know unmentioned as far as programming being put behind. Um, any last thoughts from you all? We have been chit-chatting away. I, I don't like to keep the listeners long, and they know that. Um, <laughs> so um, any last thoughts for you guys? If not, I do want to appreciate your time. But any last thoughts that you guys have? Uh, I, w- I would just say um, you know, I hope people continue to look at Georgia and, and, and what we're doing, particularly what we're doing here at the Morehouse School of Medicine. I think we have some really uh, excellent uh, thought leaders and, mm-hmm. uh, and um, we do. <laughs> intervention scientists and clinicians uh, like my colleague here, Dr. Yeah. Gagliotti, mm-hmm. yes. um, who are a part of these conversations and, and making changes or at least informing them in ways that I think are, are going to be helpful to not only the city of Atlanta, but the state at large. Georgia is the number one state, unfortunately, mm-hmm. in people under community supervision, people who are on probation and parole by far. Mm-hmm. It's I almost can, a half a million that. people. Yeah. And so I think there's going to be a lot of effort uh, over the next uh, couple of years uh, to look at why that is and to look at ways to, to have an impact on that, obviously, to get people off of the rolls, but also mm-hmm. to stop them from getting on them in particular. So, um, you know, really looking forward to, you know, helping to contribute to, to some of those conversations and to increase my collaborations with uh, colleagues here at the School of Medicine and, 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 and beyond.
Yeah, good point to um, mention just the parole aspect specifically. So many people are not incarcerated physically, but parole and probation keep you in That's those. Huge. And then you can go right back. Um, so I see that a lot in the community as well. Dr. G, any last words for you? No, I just, I, I would say for, for the listeners, you know, that I think that this has been a rewarding career path for Dr. McGregor and I, and uh, both. And like, if this is something you're considering or if, social justice issues, health policy issues, um, are, or vulnerable populations are important to you. Um, this is a great career path to, to consider serving um, because you get to do all that uh, at one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, Isn't that awesome? <laughs> yes, it's pretty great. So yeah. it's cool. Well, thank you, guys. I really appreciated um, some of our own here at MSM, and especially in, in um, the National Center for Primary Care and SHLIC. There you go. I don't know. I'm tongue-tied. <laughs> um, so, see, I told you I don't like to keep them out, so I get tongue-tied after, after 20 minutes. <laughs> uh, but thank you, guys. I really appreciate it, um, and so does um, SATTC. So, thanks, guys, and tune in for our next episode. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for joining us and be sure to check us out on the web at attcnetwork.org forward slash centers forward slash southeast hyphen attc forward slash home. We'll see you soon.